0: Hello, and welcome to the Totally Clinical podcast, brought to you by Techro. Totally Clinical is a deep dive into the freshest trends, big time challenges, and most excellent triumphs of clinical trials. I'm Hannah, your host. Join me as I chat with industry experts, trailblazers, thought leaders, and most importantly, the people benefiting from clinical research. So tune in, settle back, and don't touch that dial. It's time to get Totally Clinical. Francis Reid, the programme director at the World Ovarian Cancer Coalition, joins me on the podcast to discuss the launch of the coalition's new adaptation of the Every Woman Study. A joint initiative with the International Gynecologic Cancer Society, this study will involve up to 30 countries and documents for the first time ever on this scale the experiences of women with ovarian cancer in low and middle-income countries. Francis, welcome. You are the studies director. Could you start by telling the audience why this study is so important in the fight against ovarian cancer?
1: I think the first thing to say is that in actual fact, 70% of women with ovarian cancer in the world live in low or middle income countries. It's very easy with developments in treatment and uh, diagnosis uh, that usually happen in high income countries that we forget that the world may be very different for the majority of women who have ovarian cancer. So I think the study is going to be really important because it will hear from the women directly themselves, real world experience, uh, which is woefully lacking, and it will be comprehensive. So it will go from asking them questions about, did they know anything about ovarian cancer before their diagnosis? what led to their diagnosis, all the way through to post-treatment. So we will look at treatments, but we'll also look at uh, women's emotional support needs, their practical support needs, the impact of the diagnosis, and what they really feel should be happening to improve the chances of survival and quality of life for them. And I think it's really important as well, Um, it will bring together the patient and clinical voice. And this is why we are partnering with um, the International Gynecologic Cancer Society. They're really important in this initiative in opening up access in hospitals. And by working together with the, the women in the way that we're going to be asking them to, it will help foster those sort of advocacy relationships that may lead to work in the future.
0: The study builds on the success of the Every Woman study released in two thousand and eighteen. Could you explain a bit more about the findings from this
1: study? Our study in two thousand and eighteen uh, was an online survey uh, accessed via social media, via patient support groups, and we uh, it was an extensive survey, an hour long. And 1531 women from 44 countries took part in 15 languages, I think. But they were predominantly from high income countries. Um, And the results were really quite astounding. Um, We always knew that there uh, there is a set of issues that women face um, from getting diagnosed to accessing treatment, to accessing surgery, to getting good support and care. But what we hadn't really appreciated was the variability between countries. And the study was really useful in that it showed that no one country um, has got this nailed. So one country, for example, uh, United Kingdom, where I'm based, uh, women go to their doctors about symptoms, but the doctors are often very slow to do something about it. So the time to diagnosis is extended. This compares with somewhere like Germany, where actually it's quite routine if something's wrong to go visit a doctor and a doctor will do something literally in a matter of days often. But if you compare access to surgery, women in the UK have much better access to surgery than women in Germany. So really a very
0: different picture depending on what country you're looking at. Every country that we looked at
1: had um, criteria that they were really good at, some of them and criteria that really weren't working very well. So this variability gave us the idea that this is the key to progress. So if we can only look and learn from countries that are doing well in particular aspects, then everybody can up their game and improve um, the chances of women starting and tolerating treatment, and the chances of living a better life with the ovarian cancer. So we knew there was great power in this, and to actually be able to state it and have it published in the International Journal of Gynecologic Cancer, you know, we really um, are beginning to bring the issues to the, the fore. And it's got the interest of people in a lot of different countries saying we want to be able to express what is happening in our country. It's providing data for the first time on this type of thing um, that is the, the sort of uh, building blocks, or form the building blocks for progress. The
0: International Agency for Research on Cancer has highlighted that over the next 20 years, the burden of ovarian cancer will be felt disproportionately by lower and middle-income countries. What are the key challenges to ensuring best possible care for women in these countries?
1: We suspect that they will share many similar challenges to the women who took part in our first Every Woman study. But we do know that they face additional issues Uh, And the importance of the study is to show what are the particular issues in a particular country so that people in that country and groups in that country can begin to address those. The IARC, yes, have shown that over the next 20 years, the burden of ovarian cancer will be disproportionately in lower and middle income countries. Continents like Africa are, are going to have nearly a 100% increase in incidence of ovarian cancer uh, and an increase in mortality as well. Um, as they get to grips with diseases like cervical cancer, ovarian cancer is going to be sitting right behind there. Uh, and what we don't want to happen is that quite a bit further down the line, uh, countries don't realise that this is a major and pressing issue. And we're also... Doing it because, you know, we want an equitable platform for women to be able to get the best possible chance of survival and the best possible chance of a good quality of life. And we have seen advances in treatments, in surgery, and so on in the last five years or so. And we're really concerned that actually, unless we begin to do this type of work, um, the gap that does exist already between high and lower and middle income countries will widen even further.
0: And I imagine, as you previously mentioned, that there's variability between these countries.
1: There are specific challenges to some of these countries, and they are quite wide and uh, varied. Um, But things might be uh, access to treatments in some countries, patients themselves have to pay for the cost of basic chemotherapy that was the 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 mainstay of ovarian cancer treatment back in the 1990s say in a high-income country Uh, getting access to surgery Um, if there's no uh, intensive care facility there is no surgery Um, overcoming the stigma of a cancer diagnosis that's still a really big issue um, for women sometimes in uh, lower middle-income countries And a lack of prioritisation around women's health. If you're in a family and um, decisions have to be taken as to how you're going to spend your money on the health of your family, it's often the women who get left behind uh, because they may not be the breadwinners and so forth. So being able to look at some of these issues and unpack them a little bit will be really important because ovarian cancer, will become an ever-increasing issue for women in these countries as we go forward.
0: So you've talked a bit about the challenges when it comes to accessing treatment, but also what about the difficulty of actually getting a diagnosis in the first place?
1: Getting a prompt diagnosis is one of the most fundamental issues. Um, and in many instances and in many countries, that often takes a very long time, and the time to diagnosis could be reduced Ovarian cancer has symptoms. Um, The trouble is they are symptoms that occur in other diseases as well. So it's up to the doctor that is consulted to be a detective, if you like, to put together the pieces about the symptoms and decide that a woman needs to be tested and that she may have ovarian cancer. So we're talking um, bloating, not just bloating that comes and goes, but bloating that gets bigger and bigger. women feeling full after they've eaten only a tiny meal, um, uh, needing to go to the toilet frequently to urinate or a great sense of urgency to do that, or abdominal or pelvic pain. Now, all of these can be um, indicative of other diseases, but in particular, we know that when they're persistent and that they're very frequent, that that is a cause for concern and that you should get checked out by your doctor. And that is the first place that you should go. There are uh, tests that a doctor can do. Um, some doctors may do a manual examination. Other doctors uh, may start first with a blood test, a CA125 blood test, which increasingly the evidence is showing is actually much better than they thought it was, at being able to identify women who have ovarian cancer. And then there are scans, abdominal scans and uh, vaginal scans that can be done um, that will help decide who then needs further investigation. But the most important first step is actually realising that something's wrong. You may not know it's ovarian cancer, um, but it's important that you go to your doctor. And it's better to find out sooner rather than later. Uh, many women with ovarian cancer are often very poorly by the time they're diagnosed, so poorly that sometimes they can't even start or tolerate treatment So the sooner somebody gets a diagnosis, then the more chance they have to actually get onto some good treatment.
0: As of yet, no country has an official screening programme for ovarian cancer. Why is this and what's your advice to women looking
1: for screening options? Everybody would love there to be a screening programme for ovarian cancer, (laughs) believe me. And a lot of time, effort and work has gone into um, studying screening programmes for ovarian cancer. But as yet... There is no evidence that it saves lives Um, and undergoing surgery unnecessarily is risky. Um, Why hasn't it shown that it saves lives? That's a good question. But the big, big studies that were done, there was one done in the States and there was one done in the UK with thousands and thousands and hundreds of thousands of women. Um, They were started in the late 1990s, early 2000s. And since then, our understanding is more um, uh, more acute. We know different things about the different types of ovarian cancer, and there are possibilities of other tests that are coming along. So whilst these studies didn't deliver a screening programme, that doesn't mean there won't be in the future. But it's really important to mention two things on this front. One is that screening will never detect all cases of ovarian cancer. Screening programmes never do. Breast screening programme doesn't, bowel screening doesn't, uh, where lung cancer screening exists, it doesn't detect all the cases. You have to rely on people with symptoms going and asking for help about their symptoms. And the second really important thing is not to get confused that a pap smear or a, a screen for cervical cancer It will not detect ovarian cancer. Just very occasionally, very rarely it picks something up, but it does not detect. Ovarian cancer is different from cervical cancer. Um, And we know from work that we've done that often women get confused and think, oh, well, I've had my pap smear, I'm okay, I'm covered. So it comes back to uh, the importance of being aware of any changes to your body. And if you notice that they're persisting and they're getting worse or getting more frequent, that you go and get some help. So, no, we don't have a screening programme. There are some exciting things in the pipeline, but we know it takes time to show and to study hard to make sure that we don't put women at risk because of a screening programme and that in actual fact that a screening programme will save lives.
0: Looking to the future, how optimistic are you that we will be able to diagnose ovarian cancer early and that there'll be an increase in the survival rate in the next five to ten
1: years? I think it's a really exciting time at the moment. Um, we may have screening, uh, better screening strategies in the next five to ten years, definitely. We definitely will have even more progress on treatments. Um, I've worked in the field of ovarian cancer now for coming up to 20 years, and if I say that In my early days, progress in a clinical trial was when um, one drug would improve progression free survival by two months, um, you know, or three months if you were lucky. Uh, That meant the time from somebody being um, ill and treated to then progressing. Um, Nowadays, with the uh, new treatments, the targeted treatments, the PARP inhibitors, for example, We are already seeing um, some quite amazing progress for certain populations, uh, for certain groups of women with ovarian cancer in terms of not only extending the time to a relapse, but actually, you know, some women do not relapse. And that is really important. And it is amazing progress. And I have no doubt that it will continue to progress. Um, But there are two little caveats to that. And one is the impact of COVID has been very severe um, it's impacted on clinical trials. It certainly has impacted on uh, people being diagnosed promptly. Um, and there is evidence that uh, there have been considerable delays in people getting diagnosed and in people starting treatment. And that will impact negatively on survival rates. And the other thing to say is that these Wonderful new developments and treatments. These are basically only pretty much available in high income countries at present. So thirty percent of women with ovarian cancer in the world live in high income countries. So we have a lot of work to do to make sure that these great steps forward become accessible and uh, apply to women uh, who live right around the world so that they they do have the best chance of survival and the best quality of life wherever they live.
0: Finally, could you explain more about the WOCC's work and mission and where our audience can find out more information? The World Ovarian Cancer
1: Coalition, uh, we are made up of around about 200 member organisations from uh, nearly 50 countries around the world. Some of those are ovarian cancer patient groups. Some of them are gynaecological cancer patient groups. Some are pan cancer groups, so they deal with all cancers. Um, But all are interested in what they can do and working in their own countries to support women with ovarian cancer. So our work is really to enable them as much as we can to do the best work that they can, um, to provide them with evidence, to provide them with inspiration, to provide them with opportunities to network with each other, to learn from each other to collaborate together Um, and we also help them do things like raise awareness of symptoms so each May the 8th is World Ovarian Cancer Day which um, was started by the people who founded the World Ovarian Cancer Coalition and uh, we produce social media posts that can be co-branded with our uh, member organisations and this is particularly important for smaller ones who don't have that type of resource themselves um, so we very much try and sort of foster an interest in ovarian cancer to give them all the updates that they might need to give them the context of where they are in the world and what's happening um, and to provide inspiration and i think a good place to start is our website which is www.worldovariancancercoalition. Dot org, um, And you'll see on there um, our members, you'll see our work on the Global Ovarian Cancer Charter, which we launched last year. Um, that came out of our Every Woman Study and is basically saying there are six main priorities. Um, your country will be different in which one is the greatest priority, um, but they're based around making ovarian cancer a global priority, about improving the time to diagnosis about making sure women have access to treatment and care, good treatment and care, uh, about making sure that opportunities around family history aren't lost, uh, about improving access to information and support, and uh, to improving data around ovarian cancer. And we have members who are charter champions and they have projects that you can look at on the website that work towards those goals and that really speak to them. So we hope we're a sort of, you know, we inform, we educate, we inspire and we collaborate. And we are um, very much trying to shine a light on ovarian cancer to make people realise that that is opportunity for progress and that it's a good time to crack on with it right now.
0: Thank you, Francis, for explaining more about the new Every Woman study and by emphasizing the importance of not leaving countries behind in the fight against ovarian cancer. We look forward to welcoming you back on the podcast in 2022 to discuss the results. And that's your dose of Totally Clinical. For all the listeners out there, you can follow Tecra on Twitter. The handle is at Tekra Official, LinkedIn and Facebook, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. And of course, download the Totally Clinical podcast on Apple, Spotify, and Google. See you on your next visit, and remember to bring your friends. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.